We're continuing our study on the book of Philippians. Philippians is the letter of joy. It's the letter of joy. But it's strange because Paul is writing this letter from prison, awaiting his execution for preaching the gospel. This means we have a lot to learn about the joy that Jesus gives us. Jesus tells his disciples, abide in me so that what, right? So my joy may be in you and that your joy would be complete. Jesus promises a complete joy in him. He doesn't promise a shallow happiness, which is contingent upon our circumstances, but he promises a full joy, his joy, a complete joy that does not ebb or flow. We've seen this rare joy in Paul already. If you were with us last week and this morning, we will see it again as Paul gets personal. Paul shares his story in the passage we're about to read, but is able to rejoice In the end, verse 18, if you look down, you'll see the preview. And in that, in that, I rejoice. How does he do that? Well, let's read. Starting in verse 12. This is God's word. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. And to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. Are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. But others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Let's pray. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last spring I was introduced to the work of a young Christian author by the name of Nabil Qureshi. Now Qureshi was not always Christian. He was a devout Muslim all his life. And after years of conversation, debate study in three vivid dreams and anguish he gave up his life to follow Jesus his conversion was radical and it was costly uh, he would often wonder why god would let him live after such a conversion because he saw how much it hurt his mom and his dad But it was clear to everyone, and when I was reading his book, it was clear to me that God was carving out a unique mission to speak intelligently and clearly at our cultural moment. 
in world history. So he collected advanced degrees, like my son collects Pokemon, and he, uh, he started speaking with Ravi Zacharias Ministries around the world, and he started writing books. But a year ago, he was diagnosed with summer, uh, stomach cancer, and two months ago, he died at age 34. And if I'm honest, that does not make sense to me at all. I know he's finally in the Lord's presence, which was his desire. But he was unbelievably equipped at such a time as this. Why would God shut down such an unbelievably promising ambassador for his name and his gospel? I wonder if you've experienced this kind of confusion yourself. Maybe we're following God's will at great cost, and then suddenly we experience setback, we experience suffering, and we're asking God why. I remember when Josie, my wife, and I planted this church. We had to close our house for two years from visitors and from neighbors because the doctor told us that if our son Henry got a cold, he could die. This was not in the church planting manual. It didn't make sense. It felt like Josie and I got benched. And things like this are confusing. We thought God would roll out the red carpet when we decided to give our lives for him. How about you? Well, the men and women in this Philippian house church were confused about this same exact issue. They met this man of God with conviction. His name was Paul. And he was an apostle. And he brought this gospel which was otherworldly but true. And they believed it. And they gave their life in following this resurrected Jesus. And then they later, ten years later, learned that Paul was in a Roman jail awaiting his trial and execution. And they were asking, why would God shut Paul down? Okay, shut me down, but why Paul? He's young. He's got some ministry left in him. There is a lot of churches yet to be planted. And he is especially equipped by virtue of his training and his story. Oh, he was the chief of sinners, but he knew grace. His story, and yet God it seems, was shutting him down. So these early young Christians were confused. God, it's like benching your best player. What are you doing? Maybe you feel benched by God. Maybe you've seen others benched by God. And you're asking why. Take any setback. And allow yourself right now to ask why. Maybe you've never asked that question. But allow yourself to ask that question, why? And now, and maybe for the first time ever, you are in the living room of this ancient house church in Philippi. And you are hearing this letter that this apostle wrote from jail. You're seeing it unrolled. And you're hearing the house church leader read it to you in your confusion. 
Paul wrote this message to you. He wants you to interpret your setbacks, your suffering in a certain way, at a certain angle. James K. Smith, he talks about how scriptures help us see things differently, like window blinds. If you look at the blinds straight ahead, you just see blinds. But if you sort of do this, you see blue sky, right? If you change your angle, you see through the blinds to something behind the blinds. And so often, as Jamie Smith points out, that's how scripture works. Well, that is in a way Paul's aim here. He wants us to look at our setbacks from a certain angle. So that when we do that, we get a different picture. A picture beneath or behind the picture. Paul is in chains by Caesar. Getting shut down. And yet he writes, it's not what you think. Friends, it's not what you think either. What happens when we get that angle? Well, I think two things. One, you'll see always the gospel advancing. And two, you will start to see the glory, the outshining glory of Christ in these setbacks. A gospel angle lets you see the gospel advancing. Paul is able to help the Philippians see how his chains are not actually hindering the gospel. His chains are actually launching the gospel forward in ways that would never have been possible otherwise. And Paul is telling there are two different audiences that see the real Jesus and see, therefore, the real gospel. Gospel is the good news of Jesus. The imperial guard and the Roman Christians in this day. And so these imperial, Christ, these imperial guards, these non-Christians, they see the real Jesus when his people are set back. That's what Paul's argument is. Paul wants us to know that his chains are actually validating and displaying and proclaiming the real Jesus. He says in verse 13, take a look. That the entire imperial guard saw that his change were literally, our text says, for Christ. The Greek says, in Christ. Paul is saying that this imperial guard is seeing that his chains are in Christ. These are guards who saw raw power in Caesar. And when they looked at a beat up man in chains, they saw the Lord of Lords, the Caesar of Caesars. He was in Christ. Curios, the Lord. They saw the real Jesus whose life was shaped like a cross. Whose victory was in defeat. Whose power was in weakness. That's who they saw. They saw the real Christ and therefore the real gospel. And then Christians. They start to speak about the real Jesus. In setback. Paul says that the Christians in Rome or the brothers, verse 13, are now much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
setbacks and suffering actually embolden our witness, is the argument. And you could argue that more people are hearing about the gospel now because of this. I think there are two thieves to sharing the gospel with our friends and with our neighbors. Two thieves of evangelism. It's people-pleasing and fear of man. You could argue they're the same thing. These two things start to fade when we see others suffering courageously for the sake of the gospel. They do. I was at a conference a couple years ago and I was sat at a table with a few North American pastors and one Nigerian priest. And he asked me about my ministry and I shared about Grandview, Ohio and how cute it is. And I asked how his church was doing and he said, well, he has to have his strongest men stand at the doors because of Boko Haram. And it was humbling, to say the least. But it emboldened me. It emboldened me. Why am I so held captive to the opinions of my neighbors? There are many angles. Yes, we could view our suffering or our setbacks in the Christian life. And I think lament is a necessary angle, which we talk about gratefully a lot in this church. There is another angle at which we can view our setbacks and suffering too. And it's not exclusive to lament. They can happen at the same time. We can rejoice in lament. And what does Paul rejoice about? He rejoices about how the gospel is released in our setbacks, in our sufferings. I think when we look at our setbacks and sufferings in this way, a couple things will happen. One, we will start to prioritize faithfulness over success. In our lives, in our church, in our families. In America, we are obsessed with success. We would deem Paul a failure, wouldn't we? Boy, that's too bad, Paul. He's in jail. Hmm. Hmm. He must not be doing anything right. Boy, he must just say things a little too rash. He didn't have tact. That's why he's in jail. We're obsessed with success, aren't we? This obsession is not new. It's not unique, really, to the West. I mean, who are these who preached Christ from envy that Paul talks about in our text this morning? Who are these that preached Christ from rivalry and selfish ambition, Paul says, or insincerity? Uh, thinking to afflict Paul and his imprisonment. Who are these? Well, it's clear that they were evangelists who saw Paul as a failure. In a way, they were the world's first health wealth preachers. They were preaching about Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, but they were slandering the ministry of Paul because of his chains. He was a failure. And I'm afraid the church today is choosing cheap success over faithfulness. I'm afraid the church today, especially in America, is choosing cheap success over faithful setback. But 
But if we look at our setbacks as a, from a gospel angle, we will see how the real gospel, the real Jesus, explodes. Advances. Exactly in our place of setback and suffering. So let's be faithful. And not obsessed with success. Okay? Let's do that. Another thing I think would happen, I think you, in your suffering, would unleash the real gospel to your friends and neighbors and family. And we, as a church, and any of our setbacks, would unleash the very gospel that is our foundation into our city. Outsiders saw in Paul that Paul was chained, not just chained, but chained in Jesus. The gospel message that Paul preached was power and weakness, victory and losing. And so Paul is actually unleashing the real gospel and his suffering, and so can you. So can you. The gospel is that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. That God is most reliably present, as it's been said, at the moment of our inability, not our ability. That Jesus rescues helpless sinners and sufferers. And that we would then unleash a false gospel if we promise others worldly success this side of his return. And that would not be the real Jesus. It would be, in a real sense, the anti-Jesus. Evangelism, therefore, is for everyone. Testify to Jesus when you are slammed to the ground. And you're evangelizing the real gospel. I think our temptation, if I'm honest, is to immediately interpret setbacks as God benching us. Could it be that setbacks are actually indications that we are chosen for his mission? His cross-shaped mission. His cruciform mission. Our African church father, Tertullian, saw how persecution and setback actually grew the church. He said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. May we be a church that stands in a line of faithful witnesses. What else does Paul want us to see when we look at our setbacks from this gospel angle? Well, it's clear to me that you would see the outshining glory of Christ in your setbacks and in your sufferings. Paul has two enemies in this passage. Did you catch them? The first enemy was Caesar. But there is another enemy in this passage, and it was fellow Christians in Rome. How's that? Christians and Caesar conspiring against Paul. Chosen by Jesus to preach the gospel to outsiders. What we can gather from verses 15 through 17 in our passage is that these evangelists, these fellow Christians, were objectively preaching Christ, the news of Jesus. But they were also criticizing Paul. 
But in verse 18, if you cast your eyes down, you'll see something very interesting, something very amazing. Paul says, what then? What then? These preachers who have false motives, these preachers who even have false goals. And in between the motives and the goals, the beginning and the end, in the middle somehow is the news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for sinners. He says, he says, what then? I rejoice because that is being exalted. Because what's that? Jesus. This is a man, Paul the Apostle, who is obsessed with Christ. This is a man who has what Doug Swaggerty calls disinterested ministry goals versus self-interested ministry goals. A disinterested Christian is one who is obsessed with Christ and not themselves. I mean, how many times has Paul mentioned Christ in this testimony of his? All you would have to do is glance through the text and you would see Christ and then Christ again and then Christ again and then Christ again. Now, how many times do you see Paul whining? You don't see it happening. Why? Because he is obsessed with Christ and he can be slandered. But so long as Christ's name is lifted high, he's okay and he can sleep at night. This is a man who sees the glory of Christ outshining even his reputation as a preacher. A gospel angle on our setbacks and our suffering, personal or corporate, is Christ-obsessed so that we can actually rejoice when Jesus is made famous. I am generally obsessed with my wife, Josie. Okay? I am. But this last week, we were on a retreat without kids, and I became more obsessed. At the end of the trip, we were enjoying a train trip up the coast of Southern California. And we missed our stop. (laughs) I'm terrible at directions. I'm even terrible when someone else is driving, like a train conductor. Usually this kind of stuff throws me off, but I was okay. Why? Because I saw that I was with my wife, and it was a wonderful week with my wife, and it actually served to enhance our experience together. I was Josie obsessed, which enabled me to look at that really annoying thing in a different light. Now, that's a small indication, a small portrait of what Paul is describing here. He's saying when we're obsessed with Jesus, we can look at setbacks very differently. We can see our setbacks through a grid where we can rejoice in any circumstance, both good and bad, so long as Jesus is made famous. Two things then. Let's pray that that actually is true of our hearts. Some of you, as you're hearing this, you're like, that's wonderful for Paul. (laughs) I'm not Paul. Well, listen, Paul prays that you would experience what he experiences. If you were with us last week, you heard his prayer. He says in verse 9, if you glance up, he says, it's my prayer that your love, love for who? For God, for Jesus, and for others, but for Jesus, your love would what? Would abound more and more and more and more with what? With knowledge. And with discernment. Why? So that you can approve what is excellent. 
Paul is saying, I'm praying that you all would actually have desires that change so that when you see the glory and the fame of Jesus, the resurrected Son of God, when you see His glory, you desire Him and His excellencies over every other excellent thing in your life. That's His prayer. So let's pray too for the same thing. That assumes it doesn't come naturally. That assumes that sin has twisted our desires. That assumes that the thing we need most more than anything else in this earthly life is that our desires would change so that Jesus would be the most. So that He would increase and we would decrease. That is what we need to start praying for in our lives and for our kids and for our spouses and for our friends. Jesus is excellent, most excellent. If we don't deem him such, it's our problem, not his. And we need him by a miracle to change our hearts to actually see his excellencies. And when we do and setbacks come, we can say Jesus is made famous right now. And that makes my heart sing. Paul wants us to rejoice with him in his suffering and especially in ours. And we can only do that if we look at our suffering from the gospel angle. The gospel which tells us that losing is winning. The gospel which tells us that weakness is strength because humility is where God's power rests. The gospel which says that Jesus won on a cross. That he defeated Satan while being crucified. That our sin was dealt with by Jesus' death in our place. That sinners, therefore, are saints in Christ. And that the Holy Spirit draws near to those who are humble, drawing near to God in need. That gospel angle will change everything. We will start to see things, start to see things in our suffering and setbacks that only we can see in Christ. We will see the gospel advancing. Through those blinds, we will see the gospel advancing and we will see the glory of Jesus shine. Russell Moore, who's a voice of clarity in my opinion, he wrote this in the Washington Post after the Texas shooting. He said, To eradicate churches, our opponents will need a better strategy. To eradicate churches, our opponents will need a better strategy. They should see that Christianity can be easily easier suffocated with comfort. To the point that we forget who we are, crucified in Christ. They should see that Christianity can be easier suffocated with comfort than it can be terrorized with violence. 
Those who try to confront the church with the threat of death only remind the church that we were dead in Christ and we are alive in Christ as we stand. Let's pray. Enlarge our hearts, we ask Jesus, so that we could rejoice in our sufferings. Open the eyes of our hearts so that we would see things in our setbacks and sufferings that we would not see with natural eyes, with natural hearts. And like Paul, make Jesus the prize. We ask it in your name. Amen.